Thank you, Mr. Burnett. Happy Sabbath to you all. Very nice to be here with you today. A couple of summers ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to spend a few days in Madrid, the capital of uh, Spain. Let me see if I can get this up here. Um, it's a beautiful and impressive city with a very long history. It was the capital of one of the world's greatest empires in history. We visited some palaces and castles and museums. We enjoyed some tapas and some sangria, all the things that you do when you're enjoying the fine cuisine of Spain. And we had the opportunity to see one of the most famous paintings, perhaps the most famous painting of the 20th century. Between 1936 and 1939, a particularly brutal civil war broke out in Spain. After years of rising tension, open war broke out between the government, uh, called the Republic sometimes in history books, backed by a rather disorganized group, dis group of socialists and communists, anarchists, uh, an anti-Catholic coalition. They were quite divided among themselves. And on the other side, you had rebel groups uh, on the right, and they were called the Falange or the Fascists. They were fervent Catholics, conservatives fearing the dissolution of Spain, aristocrats, anti-communists. Uh, this group, this side, was very united. True and open hatred opposed the two sides, and the fighting was pitiless. I have a few slides. Most of the people who fought were not professional soldiers. They were just civilians that felt strongly about one side or the other. And so the fighting became very brutal. There was uh, human cleansing on both sides. There were massacres that occurred. And in many ways, Spain is still dealing with the fallout from this, uh, this conflict even today. Both sides received support from abroad. Um, the government received support from the Soviet Union and from Mexico. And the phalangists received support from Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. So they would bring troops in or provide support for one side or the other. The Germans sent the Condor Legion to provide direct assistance, especially from Luftwaffe air units, which allowed the Nazis to test their new equipment. This was a trial run for them for the Blitzkrieg that they would unleash on other parts of Europe a few years later. On Monday, April 26, 1936, a market day, a city located here, which was considered to be the capital of the ancient Basque people. Uh, the city was named Guernica. It was targeted by an air attack. The Basques are a European ethnic group characterized by the Basque language, which is unrelated to any other European language. They had a common culture, common genetic heritage uh, that goes back to pre-Roman times, in fact. And people who are Basques to this day know if they're Basque or not. When we lived in France, we knew right away by some of the surnames that people had uh, that uh, they, they came from that uh, culture. The Basques, in exchange for a promise of post-war autonomy, they supported the Republic. And on this day, most of the men were 20 or 30 miles away fighting on the front lines. The only people that were left in the town were basically women and children. Then the Germans arrived with the Air Force. And for two hours in the afternoon of that day, for more than two hours, 21 German bombers and three Italian bombers made pass after pass after pass over this city. This is an example of the airplanes, and this was some of the damage that was caused. Uh, it was really terrible. The city was absolutely destroyed. 
And as I said, most of the people that were there were women and children, so it caused a great deal of outrage. The city was very badly damaged. Estimates of killed go from 126 killed to over 1,600 killed, again, women and children. And the world was horrified by this atrocity that was committed. One of the people who was especially horrified by what had happened in his country was the Spanish artist Pablo Picasso. He decided to underscore the horror of this massacre by creating a special painting for the Pavilion of Spain at the International Exposition of Arts and Techniques and Modern Life in Paris. That was held in 1937. These are some of the buildings that came from there. And he ended up creating what was one of the most famous paintings of the 20th century. Now let me let you know that I understand abstract art, which is what Picasso did for most of his career. That's not to everybody's taste, and I'm not going to try to convince you to take up an interest in abstract art. But this was a very influential movement, and it could and can cause very strong emotional reactions, which is the draw to this particular painting. Now, if you're having trouble seeing the screen, you can raise your hand and the ushers will have some uh, uh, blow-ups of the photo of this painting so that you can follow along as we talk about it for a minute or two. So if you would like to have a paper copy of that, you can raise your hand now and they will, uh, they'll do that for you. So this is Picasso working on his painting. He worked on a piece of unbleached muslin, three and a half meters, by uh, a, a couple of other meters, so it's a very large one. And since the work was so large, he actually had to use a ladder to get up to paint the top parts of it. He spent more than two months creating Guernica. He used only black and white paint to invoke documentary photography, and his cubist use of fragmented imagery makes it a very poetic evocation of the terrors of war. Uh, this is what my wife and I saw, and we visited it in the museum in um, Madrid. And I can tell you that it makes a very powerful impression on when you stand and look at it. So here's a view of it. Now, if you can't see this clearly, uh, please ask for a paper copy. We've got those going around. But let me just, just for a moment, let me describe what's going on here, uh, because I think you'll find it quite interesting. The scene unfolds in a room where at an open end to the left, a wide-eyed bull stands over a woman in mourning for a dead child in her arms. The center is occupied by a horse that dies as if it had been pierced by a spear or a javelin. The large gaping wound in the side of the horse is a major element of the picture. Under the horse is a dead soldier, apparently dismembered. His hand on a severed arm still holds a broken sword, out of which a flower grows. On the open palm of the dead soldier is a stigma, a symbol of martyrdom derived from the stigmata or wounds of Jesus Christ. A light bulb shines in the form of an evil eye over the head of the suffering horse, the bare bulb of the torturer's cell. To the top right of the horse, a frightened female figure seems to have entered the room through a window. Her arm, also floating, carries a lamp lit with a flame. The lamp is placed very close to the bull and symbolizes hope, perhaps, hitting the bulb. On the right, a frightened woman staggers toward the center under the floating female figure. She looks up at the light bulb. The daggers that suggest cries of fear replace the language of the bull, the woman in mourning, and the horse. A dove is inscribed on the wall behind the bull. Part of the body includes a crack in the wall through which one can see a bright light, hope, or the outside world. On the extreme right, a woman with, raised, with arms raised in terror is trapped by fire from above and below. Her right hand suggests the shape of an airplane. A dark wall open with, uh, with an open door defines the right end of the mural. 
So this is quite an interesting painting and it actually had quite an interesting history. After being displayed at this uh, exposition in Paris, he decided it would never go to Spain as long as there was not a democratic government. So the painting was transferred to the United States where it remained until 1981, which was when Francisco Franco stepped down and democracy returned to Spain. Guernica has become one of the best known anti-war representations in the world and war is indeed a scourge on humanity. Why is it that we fear and hate war so much? Well, there's of course the death, the, the disappearance of loved ones, but there's pain, there's destruction, and there is also soul-crushing fear. And that's the main thing that's portrayed in this painting. Every human being is either dead or terrified. The animals are terrified. This is a representation of fear. One of the things that we look forward to when we think about the coming kingdom of God and the establishment of that kingdom on earth and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is the promise that there won't be war anymore. That was the cover article on our very first Discern magazine. They shall not learn war anymore because humanity longs for that time. Let's read a couple of scriptures on that together if you don't mind. Micah chapter four to start with. Micah chapter four. This is a passage we often read at the Feast of Tabernacles. Micah chapter four, verse three. He shall judge many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible, and one we all look forward to seeing fulfilled in those promises for the future. And how is that going to happen? Well, that's a process that we understand as well because the Bible explains it to us. It's going to, it's going to require a profound change in human nature. It's going to require the addition of God's spirit. Ezekiel spoke to that in Ezekiel chapter 11. Let's turn there, Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. The problem that brings war about in human history is the stony heart of human beings who are unfeeling and uncaring toward each other, who are jealous and covetous of what other people have. Sometimes they're also motivated by fear, but in any event, a hard, selfish heart, and God is going to change that heart. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says that he's going to put his laws in the hearts of people. The law of God is not going to be an external thing acting on them externally, but it's going to well up within them and it's going to change the way they act. A new heart, a new mind that will lead the world to peace and they won't learn war anymore. But it will also have another impact on people, a wonderful transformation that is nearly impossible for us to imagine today. We can kind of get it theoretically, but to try to imagine this change on the scale of the entire world is difficult for us. What will that change be? I'm gonna make you wait on that for a moment. We'll come back to it. 
But before we talk about that, I would like for us to talk about another problem that's rising in the world today, what the Bible calls this present evil world. Over the course of the past months, I've been following some research about the rise of the level of fear that people live with every day. And this is something that's happening all around the world. The level of fear is rising. It's growing stronger in the world. There are, of course, existential threats to humanity. There are weapons of war out there that could wipe out everybody. But that's not all that we fear. In 2014, a group of scientists began a project called the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. Many of the findings from those studies and surveys are recorded in a book entitled Fear Itself, The Causes and Consequences of Fear in America. It's a very interesting read. It's actually a fairly quick read, and uh, I found it definitely worth the time to read it. Here's what the researchers say about their survey so you understand what they're trying to do. Our survey includes the largest set of items ever asked about fear. We ask Americans how afraid they were of crime in its different forms, terrorism, and different types of natural disasters. We found out who's afraid of running out of money, getting sick, losing their jobs, or dying. Our respondents told us how afraid they were of illegal immigration, government corruption, mass shootings. We even learned about specific phobias by asking Americans if they're afraid of heights, reptiles, just heard about that, didn't we? Spiders, needles, public speaking, and a host of other potentially frightening things from air pollution to zombies. We know more about Americans' fears than ever before. Indeed, Americans are afraid of many things. According to the 2019 survey from Chapman University, uh, that survey of American fears, uh, this is 2019, so COVID's not in there. It probably will be in the next one that they do. But here's the top 10 fears. Corrupt government officials, 77.2% of Americans are afraid of corrupt government officials. That's our greatest fear. Interesting. The second one is pollution of oceans, lakes, and rivers, 68%. The third one, people I love becoming seriously ill, 66.7%. Pollution of drinking water, 64.6%. People I love dying, 62.9%. Air pollution, 59.5%. Cyber terrorism, 59.2%. Extinction of plant and animal species, 59.1%. Global warming and climate change, 57.1%. Not having enough money for the future, 55.7%. The people working on this study, they call this list the sum of all fears. You may recognize that was the title of a Tom Clancy novel and a movie that was based on it some years ago. As I said, today we could probably add the COVID-19 epidemic and societal breakdown, which we've been watching over the past year, no doubt with some horror and disbelief. The scenes that we watch on the news now, the reactions of our elected officials, the chaos that's coming in our societies, and we see it growing, it brings to mind a poem by William Butler Yeats called The Second Coming. He wrote this a long time ago, but how true it is today. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That seems to me a very apt description of our world. We fear the unknown. 
And so much today is unknown for most people. Things seem to be headed to some sort of demented climax in the future, and indeed we know from prophecies that the day of man, the age of man, will end in a demented climax. I believe that our nation, the United States in particular, is beginning to receive one of the curses of Deuteronomy 28. In verse 28 it says, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways, you shall only be oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. That seems like that prophecy is coming true. It's not hard to understand why people are afraid. In fact, some kinds of fear are salutary. They're good for us. But if it goes too far, it becomes very destructive. On page 133 of this book, uh, Fear Itself, here's a quote. Fear is a double-edged sword. It can keep us safe from harm and motivate us to take action to address potentially harmful future events. But all too often, fears are unfounded, unnecessary, and psychologically, socially, and politically damaging. I would like to ask you, brethren, get you involved in this a little bit, ask you to do a thought experiment for yourself. Think for a moment and write in your notes, you don't have to show them to anything, anybody else, write in your notes, if you would, in the margin there, three things that frighten you or worry you. And we're gonna come back and examine those, uh, and I'll invite you to think about them, perhaps in a different way. I'll give you a second now to think about that and jot down three things. I think you'll find it worth your while later in the sermon. One of the values of this exercise is sometimes we may be afraid of something and not actually know that we're afraid of it. It's just kind of hanging out there in the back of our minds, causing a vague anxiety. One feature of the research done is that some people live with more intense fear than others. Now, these are generalizations, so it won't be true of every individual in each of these groups, just generally. On average, women tend to be more fearful than men. People with less education, which can equate to fewer job prospects and income, they tend to live with a higher level of fear. Minorities live with a higher level of fear. People close to the edge in society, financially and otherwise, they live with more fear. And one issue that's troubling in our society is that while some fears are found all the way across the social spectrum, certain particularly very visible fears are not. We have seen, no doubt to our disgust and horror this year, that our society is very divided politically now. And both conservatives and liberals and everybody else on the, on the spectrum there, they're all afraid. But they're not all afraid of the same things. And that is due to the role of media. There are two general sets of processes in our brains. The first is known as the disposition system, which addresses long-term habits of the mind, decision-making that relies on deeply ingrained values and identity. For us, that would equate to Christianity. That's what guides our logical reasoning and analysis of things and how we feel we should respond to situations that present themselves. But there is another contrasting system which scientists have dubbed the surveillance system. It sets off alerts when some new 
frightening, potentially dangerous circumstance presents itself. This captures our attention very fully and very immediately and very powerfully because we're facing something that could be a risk to our lives or our, uh, our, our health. It is seen as a threat to our safety, so it has our full attention. We need to know more. We need to find out more. Um, like Mr. Averett with the gecko. That was a dangerous thing, and his mind was totally focused on that at that time. That is the surveillance system. When we're operating under the surveillance system, when that has our attention, nuanced and reasoned arguments don't get the same kind of attention that they would otherwise. Appeals to fear really heighten our attentiveness. We now have what they call in this book, and others have called, fear TV, especially in the United States. Fear TV. Many people get their news from a small number of news sources that have finely tuned themselves to people's interests. And oftentimes that equates to their fears. So they're going to target their fears because they know that's what's going to get the most attention and keep people focused and keep them coming back. Researchers found that there's an important connection between the consumption of media and fear. The more modern media you consume, the higher your level of fear is going to be. The research compared, for example, MSNBC and Fox News. Uh, you know, one is on the left and one is on the right. Frequent watchers of both of those networks are more afraid than people who don't watch them. But they're afraid of different things. They're not afraid of the same things. The conclusion is that each network is exacerbating different kinds of fears. Neither news outlet really wants to convert the, the, the people watching the other network. They know that's not really going to happen. They're just trying to keep their group of watchers, their audience, stuck to the screen. And so they play on those particular fears. When you keep people attached to your screen or attached to your channel, you make more, money, more advertising money. So in other words, a way to put that is our fears in this nation are being monetized by people. And they're playing on those fears, both on the left and on the right. Now, please understand, I'm not saying you should or should not watch those things. That's your, your decision, your choice. But I would suggest it would be good for all of us to analyze our media consumption. And this goes for social media as well, because similar things will happen on social media. It would be good for us to analyze our media consumption and see how healthy or perhaps how unhealthy that might be for our peace of mind and our mental equilibrium. We should be aware of the invisible side effects that it can have on us. Please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writing to a younger Timothy here, he said, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Not fear, power love, and a sound mind. Now let's think about the implications of that for a moment. This puts those in opposition. In other words, fear is the enemy of power and love and a sound mind that God's Spirit can give us. 
If our fears are not controlled, if they go beyond the limits of what's good for us to keep us from making mistakes, if it gets away from us, we won't have a sound mind, or at least as sound a mind as what we otherwise would. And we see this happening in our society all the time, and it seems to be getting worse all the time. We now have Americans killing other Americans over ideology, over politics, over social ideas. Blood is in the streets now in this nation. And some of that's motivated by fear. Thankfully, it's not been very many yet. And of course, one of the, one of the effects of Fear TV is that they always show you the worst that's going on in the country. And they don't show you kind of what the average is. They're always gonna show, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, because that's what fixes people's attention on the media. So not very many people are doing that yet. We probably can count on that phenomenon to continue growing in the years ahead. So a question I have for us to think about, one of several today, is what will we do? How are we going to respond and how are we going to live in a world that's going to be increasingly fearful? How will we handle facing a world like that? Will we face it with a sound mind, with the power of God and the love of God? Or will we face it with barely controlled or maybe even uncontrolled fear because there is opposition between those elements. One of the challenges that faced the first century church was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism starts with a silent G, in case you want to write that down. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And Gnosticism was the claim that some people among, in and among, kind of floating among the Christian community, that they had secret knowledge that only they could reveal to you. Secret knowledge into which one had to be initiated by those who are already in the know in order to know the truth. And we find references to this in the New Testament where the apostles had to fight against that. It was alluring to some people in the church of God in the first century. Let's read an example in Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two can seem a little bit may be difficult to follow unless we know that Paul is speaking to these Gnostic ideas, the secret knowledge that didn't come from the Bible. It came from these uh, initiated people who had somehow discovered it. And you could, you could be in the know, you could join that group, you could go with them. Colossians chapter two, verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or a Sabbath because these Gnostics claim to have secret knowledge about the way you're supposed to be doing this, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, the worship of angels. See, that didn't come from the Bible, but that's what some people were pushing. You know, if you really want to have full knowledge, you need to pass by this angelic intermediary, and he'll reveal things to you then. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. And he goes on. He's talking about Gnosticism. Paul is combating Gnosticism. If you read the next three or four verses, you'll see he continues in the same vein, trying to get people back to what they know for sure in the word of God, not the supposedly secret knowledge that other people don't have. John warned against it in the first epistle of John, First John, you'll find references to John combating Gnosticism, secret knowledge. 
Now, we must all acknowledge, and this is important, the Bible does contain some knowledge that God doesn't reveal to everybody. So there is some knowledge in the Bible that's secret, but it's in the Bible. It's not somebody outside the Bible telling us things that we should be doing. Um, When it comes from the Bible, we need to hold on to it strongly. There will be a beast. There will be a false prophet. There are bad things that are coming to this world of men. But when it comes to things that don't come out of the Bible, the Word of God, then we should be very careful and very circumspect in what we focus on. Now, let me make an illustration of this. This is not perhaps a perfect illustration, but I think you'll see a connection when I mention it. Let's consider for a moment what we call conspiracy theories. A conspiracy theory is the idea that there's some secret knowledge that most people don't have. It's maybe it's being hidden from most people, and that's usually what a conspiracy theory is, that the government or some big international organization is doing something secretly, and most people don't know about it. Only a few kind of initiated people who have figured it out, they have found it. There's a plot going on that's fooling people. Conspiracy theories are usually unfalsifiable. In other words, there's no clear way you can prove that it's wrong. That's, one of, that's why they stick around so long, because they're set up in such a way, or they're presented in such a way, you can't prove that it's wrong. Nobody can prove it's wrong, so um, people go on with it. Um, about 70% of Americans, according to the research done, 70% of Americans believe in a, at least one conspiracy theory. Uh, and it's not incomprehensible that people would believe that. Do we trust our government? No, we don't. The, the thing we're most afraid of is corrupt government officials. So it's, it's not uncommon or illogical completely that people would have questions about it. Are they really telling me the whole truth? Because we all know a politician would never lie to us, right? So people worry about that. 70%, nearly 70% believe that the government is withholding information about the John F. Kennedy assassination. 70% of Americans, just about. And if you go down to the grassy knoll, there are people who will sell you tracts and explain to you why you shouldn't believe that too. I've been down there and seen it. 53% believe that the whole truth has not been told about the 9-11 attacks. 50% believe that the government's hiding information about contact with aliens. 43% believe that the Illuminati Bilderberg secret world order is going on, and most people don't know about it. 43% believe that the truth's not being told about mass shootings. Now, I'm not saying that these are necessarily logical, and if you happen to believe one of them, that I'm not speaking down on you or against you at all. It's just, we just want to examine this thing, take a step back and examine it and see if this kind of fear is good for us or if it's not good for us. And then we can modulate things. As I said, some people live in more fear than others. Some people's lives are more precarious than others. Thankfully for us as Christians who believe that the Bible is the word of God, And those who practice their beliefs regularly, this was found in the research, they tend to have a lower fear level than other groups. That's one of the blessings of knowing God, knowing his way, and practicing it. Now let me tell you one conspiracy theory that really shocked me. It really surprised me. 32% of Americans believe that the U.S. government is not telling the truth about the South Dakota air crash. I was stunned when I read that. 32% believe that facts are being withheld about the South Dakota air crash. Now, I won't ask how many of you believe that for the simple reason that there never was a South Dakota air crash. The people who did this research, they just made it up and included it in the list of conspiracy theories and asked people whether they believed it. 
And a third of Americans who were polled said they believed it. They'd never even heard of it before. What does that tell us? Well, I believe it indicates that we can get into a frame of mind that is so fearful and so suspicious that we'll say we believe something that we've never even heard of before. Fear can cloud our minds. Suspicion can cloud our minds. Now, my goal is not to mock anyone or make light of the fears of anyone, but it does show us how fear can change the way we think and take away some of the soundness of mind that God would want us to have. That's an example of fear affecting our thinking. If we're looking through the lens of fear and suspicion, it can get to the point where we'll believe almost anything. And we can all see that that's not good for us. That wouldn't be good for a Christian. So my humble suggestion is that we make a point of taking a half step back or a step back when some new suspicion rolls through society, when some new conspiracy theory comes through about Bill Gates and vaccinations or new Coke or the flat earth or Deepwater Horizon or microchips under our skin and so on. Those are all conspiracy theories that have a big following out there in the world. They are a product of mistrust and fear. But getting really focused on them, like the Gnostics did with their false information or their disputed information, that can make us more fearful than we otherwise would be if we focus on those things. Please look in 1 John chapter 4 with me. 1 John 4. Verse 17. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Fear fights against love. The more we love, the less we'll fear. Now, this passage is talking first and foremost about a fear of God's judgment and his justice, but there is a larger understanding of it as well. When we understand the depth and the power of God's love, we won't be fearful we'll know that he'll be merciful to us. But it's true in the larger sense that if we live in the confidence of God's love, justice, and mercy, we're going to live everyday life with a lot more confidence as well, with the understanding and the knowledge that God is in charge, and we don't really have to worry about that. Jesus, the Bible says, was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a witness for God's will, his love, his mercy, Many Christians who went before us were martyred for practicing their faith. They didn't fight back. They didn't kick back. They didn't try to take an eye for an eye. They set a wonderful example in God's service. What would we risk, you and I? What would we risk to do the right thing in a tight spot, to give the benefit of the doubt? Because so much of the fear mongering, if I can say, that's going on out there in the world right now is about your security. These people are trying to take something from you, these other people, whoever they are, and they're going to come for you, and they're going to take your stuff, and they're going to, you know, it's about fear. You've got to defend yourself. 
That's the big motivation in politics right now. What would we do? What would we be willing to do in order to do the right thing? To give the benefit of the doubt in a tight situation, one that might look kind of dangerous to us. To show outgoing concern in a moment of uncertainty or in the face of a perceived threat. What do you think God would have Christians do in circumstances like that? Would we move to protect ourselves immediately by whatever means necessary? Or would we do something else? Might we pray and ask God, I'm going to try to help here. The situation doesn't look entirely good, but in order to honor you, I'm going to try to do what I think is the right thing. And I ask you to hold me in the palm of your hand while I do it. Is that a prayer we might pray? What would God have us do? I believe it's fair to say God would not want us to be guided by fear or to have our behavior dictated by fear because that's the opposite of his love and his sound mind. And love fights against fear. Are there things we can do to control our fear in this world, to lessen it? Some of the suggestions that came from fear itself include these. These are some suggestions from the researchers who uh, have been doing this study. The first one they said is lessen screen time and cell phone use. Many of the media out there want you to be afraid to keep you tuned in to whatever it is that they're showing you. And those advertising dollars keep pouring in. They monetize your fear. They suggest that we get our news from slow media. That means where you have to read it rather than fast media where you're watching images and you're hearing people talk to you and shoot things at you to get a rise in your emotion. The second suggestion they make is to be skeptical of claims that all people of a certain category are uniformly bad. We should be skeptical about that. Thirdly, face your fears. If you're afraid of something, learn about it. Learn if there's some way to mitigate it. Do your research in the cool of the situation, not in the heat of the moment. Fourth, when you can, plan for fears. They said most people think that there's going to come a time when, the gover when government services are going to break down. And for 72, 40, whatever, 72, uh, five days, six days, there's not going to be electricity, there's not going to be running water. They, they, most people believe that. But only a tiny fraction of people have ever planned for it. They don't have a... They don't have 72 hours worth of food or candles or whatever. Those are just simple things. It's not, that's not going to save us from the end of the world, but it's very realistic to think that there could be a loss of power or water or civil services for a certain amount of time. Thinking about it in advance and taking reasonable precautions can lessen our level of fear. Natural disasters happen. The fifth thing they suggest is to remember that news media will disproportionately show us the most violent, unusual, and strange acts of humanity while usually ignoring what is good and kind and more commonplace. Sixth, be on your guard against people who will try to manipulate you by fear to get you to buy a product or to think a certain way. There are a bunch of them out there trying to do that every day of the week. Seventh, don't let your fear undermine your trust in all other people. Take sensible precautions, but not against everybody. Withdrawal and isolation enhance fear. Socializing reduces fear. So they suggest that we connect with our neighbors, that we'd be willing to reach out and make connections. That lessens our level of fear. Connections are how God calls most people into the church. 
So connections are a good thing. Remember that conquering fear, this is number eight, the last one. Remember that conquering fear means taking the reins of thought from our impetuous senses, which are well-meaning, but that keep us always on our guard against a threat. That's not really a good way to live our lives. I mentioned Tom Clancy's novel, The Sum of All Fears, a little while ago. That's actually a quote from Winston Churchill, or a takeoff on a quote from Winston Churchill. He said in November of 1943, you may take the most gallant soldier, the most intrepid airman, and the most audacious soldier, and put them at a table together. What do you get? The sum of their fears. Because fear feeds on itself, and it can grow. And uh, conversation or contact with fearful people, and that can happen in media or it can happen uh, in life in general, that can actually make our fear grow cause our fear level to rise. Fears can multiply if they're not checked by a cool head and a sound mind of the kind that God gives us through his Holy Spirit. And we don't want to live our lives in fear. I said toward the beginning of the sermon that the change of heart and mind that will solve the problem of war will also cause what I believe is even a greater change in the world to come, the kingdom of God. And it actually has to do with what we've been talking about. It has to do with fear. There's a wonderful promise that's given multiple times in the Bible about something that's going to be completely absent in the kingdom of God. War will be absent, but also fear. Micah chapter 4, verse 4. Micah chapter 4, verse 4. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Everyone will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make anyone afraid. That's a magnificent promise, and it's repeated in Ezekiel 34, verse 28. It's repeated again in Zephaniah 3, verse 13. No one will make them afraid. Can you imagine the entire world without fear? Very hard for me to imagine. I mean, theoretically, I get the concept, but to actually imagine a whole world where no one is afraid of the long list of things that may frighten us today? Let's go back to the list of things, the three things that I ask you to jot in the margins of your notes. What did you write? Will people fear those things when Jesus Christ rules on the earth? I don't know what you wrote, but I believe the answer is almost certainly no. Corruption? No. Pollution? No. Crime? No. Terror? No. Disappearance of loved ones? Not going to be pleasant, but we'll know the ultimate things that are going to happen, the outcomes, and so there won't be a fear of death as it is known to people who don't know what's coming next. Disappearance of a species? No. Cancer? No. COVID-19, COVID-22, COVID-28, there will be more, (laughs) but people won't be afraid of them. People won't be afraid of them. Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah 35, verse 5. 
Isaiah 35. Verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like the deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing, for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. An entire world in good health, an entire world unafraid. No cancer. Air pollution? No. Deforestation? No. Global warming? Development of databases and files with private data, water pollution, pedophiles, influence of the media, Alzheimer's, economic crisis. No. None of those things will be feared because they just won't be there. That won't be allowed. Fear of death? As I said, there'll always be some trepidation involved in that. We'll fear the separation and the pain of separation. But everyone will understand God's plan and the goodness of God, they will absolutely know his goodness. So, no, there won't be an unnecessary or exaggerated fear of that either. People will be able to live in confidence. Turn to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah 8. This is one of my favorite verses about the kingdom of God because of the picture that it paints for us. Zechariah 8 verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. We Can't let our children play in the streets most of the time now. I could play in the streets when I was a kid probably wouldn't let our children do that anymore because of the way the world is changing. But there we have a wonderful vision of what the future is going to be in that world without fear. And we look to that future. It should be one of our great motivations. It gives us hope and confidence. And we celebrate it in the Feast of the Eternal every year. But we should be preparing for that now. We should be learning the way of peace, no fear, or controlled fear, now, when Pablo Picasso lived in occupied Paris under the Nazis during the war, that's where he was, he had contact with a German officer who was an art fan, I guess you could say, and he, he looked at a photograph of Guernica, the great painting, and he said to Picasso with amazement, you did that. And Picasso replied to him coldly, no, you did it. The cause of the Guernica massacre was a heart of stone cut off from God, a heart of selfishness, a heart of envy, and yes, a heart full of fear. Even when God opens our eyes and allows us to come to him, it is the effort of a lifetime for us to allow him to replace that heart of stone, that human nature, with a heart according to God. And it takes our best efforts every day. We have to realize that that's, that struggle to get there starts in our own hearts, each and every one of us. There's an author that I enjoy reading from the early 1900s. His name is G.K. Chesterton. He was a devout Christian, and he wrote about societal issues and Christianity and lots of things. Very creative man, known for his humility and his wit. 
In the early 1900s, the Times of London sent a correspondence, a letter to many of the leading intellectual lights and writers of the time in England, and they asked them to ask, answer the question to the best of their ability. The question was, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton wrote a very brief letter back. It said this, Dear Sir, you ask what is wrong with the world today. I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. Because what's wrong with the world is the human heart that we all have. The seeds of the problems of the world lie in all of us. And that must be dealt with in order to create that wonderful world without fear, which is to come. But before we finish, we should mention that there is actually one fear, one kind of fear, that will be ubiquitous in the kingdom of God. And we find that in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23. Proverbs 19, verse 23. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the eternal leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the eternal, leads to life. That fear will be present in every chest in the world, in every mind, in every art. But that's not a terrorized fear. That's a profound respect and appreciation for who God is and what he does and what that means for us. A deep respect. That deep respect is the beginning of the transformation of the human heart. It is difficult for us to imagine an entire planet without fear, a whole world without a phobia of anything, a world in peace, with memories only of massacres like Guernica, only distant, distant theoretical memories. Yes, that's right, I read about that one time, that did happen. But nothing that anyone will have seen with his own eyes. I would encourage us, brethren, to continue our efforts to submit to God, to be very aware of the transformation that needs to have to take place from that heart of stone to be replaced with a heart of flesh through the activity of God's spirit and our submission to that. I think we need to keep this in the forefront of our minds, especially as we see the fear levels rising in the world. We need to be beacons and islands of hope and confidence and stability in the middle of all that. God could use those examples in a very powerful way if he chooses to do so. We have to concentrate on our constant effort to align ourselves with the law and the way of God. This is how we help to prepare for the establishment of what our creator promises, a world without fear, because no one will make them afraid.